somewhere at some point in time, we fell in love. I really don't know when. Like all relationships, it seemed to happen in the blink of an eye, from the blur of whatever we were doing before to a passionate, unquestioning love for the modern, handsome, beautiful interface of the moment. Apps. Maybe it was these gently whispered sweet nothings from all the way back in 2009. What's great about the iPhone is that if you want to check snow conditions on the mountain, there's an app for that. The commercial continued. Our pulses quickened. And if you want to check exactly where you parked your car, don't tease me. We all know how to end that phrase. Six beautiful trademark words that may have unintentionally fenced in this generation's limitations on technological creativity. There's an app for that. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is 99 cents to download. An app, just by being an app, doesn't guarantee that it produces anything of merit to anyone anywhere. But please, shh, we must defend our loved one's honor. An app's creation is sold of gospel, of wonder, and miracle. We're blessed that someone wrote working code that somehow illuminated the dark mythical path to Apple or Google's app catalog. The New York Times featured an app of the week with heart-throbbing titles like a weather app that works. And during the financial crisis, the New York Times featured a Bloomberg app as app of the week because it revealed, quote, basic stock market data. Here are some real CNN headlines. No toilet paper? There's an app for that. Can't sleep? There's an app for that. Passover? There's an app for that. Heart attack? There's an app for that. Save the whales? There's an app for that. Giving birth? There's an app for that. Dead? There's an app for that. I want to start at the lecture portion by looking at a picture of a toaster. This is a toaster from the late 1940s, a time in which we were obsessed with something different: fast-moving planes and trains, aerodynamic forms. So we made an aerodynamic toaster. We thought things like streamlined trains were amazing, so we made fast-moving streamlined irons. In the late 1940s, we thought cruise ships were the future, so we made apartment complexes that look like them. Today, we're obsessed with something different: with technology, with gadgets, with smartphones and smartwatches, even failed technology like 3D television. So we do things today, like make this. This is Crest 3D whitening toothpaste. It's the number one selling toothpaste in the United States, and unlike all the other toothpaste in the market, this one is 3D. <laughs> this is one of the top-selling sunglasses on Amazon today. It promises you HD vision <laughs> because we don't know why we sleep today. When you advertise for a mattress. You don't show a picture of a mattress. You show a woman sleeping on top of a fully charged battery icon. These everyday products are reflections of what's on our minds today. What's trending today? 
One of the interesting things to look at when you're trying to figure out where we're going is what young people are choosing to study. And more and more young people are choosing to study things related to technology. At well-rounded universities like Stanford, which used to be known as a psychology school, computer science is invading those universities. At art schools across the world, there's less and less interest in traditional industrial and graphic design, and more and more interest in interaction design. There's all this excitement, all this momentum, all this talent that's here in this room and that's coming. But you know, whenever we have to solve a problem in technology, we often do something unfortunate. We often set a low bar. Because no matter what the problem, we so often have the same answer. Question, how do we make a better car? Above is one of the earliest patent drawings for an automobile. The technologists of the day solved a real problem with transportation. And as, as a result, the car changed the way we live, the way our cities are built. So today, utilizing the amazing progress we made in the over 100 years since this drawing, what technique have modern technologists used to improve the car? Answer? Oh, slapped an interface on it. Who would need to look at the road while driving? Leaning over to touch a screen is so much more fun. Tesla is one of the most innovative companies in the world. That's why they've got a 17-inch touchscreen center console. Some lost soul at The Verge wrote, I don't want a web browser in my car, and more importantly, I don't want the drivers around me to have one. But consider scroll bars in your center console. I know, amazing. Question, how do you make a better trash can? Answer, slap an interface on it. Hope you got this obvious one. You can make a better trash can by turning it into a $47,000 LCD recycling bin so that you can see if it's raining outside when you're standing outside in the rain. <laughs> 100 of these incredible bins were installed in London just before the 2012 Olympic Games to help the city show off its futuristic wonders. And why not? Screens are so futuristic. This is a set of job listings from some of the top technology companies across the world. You notice something unusual about this common pattern of advertising for these UX slash UI designers. But of course, user experience design and user interface design are two different things. User interface designer's job is to compose elements on a screen. It's an important job, but it's looking at how to build screens in a great way. A user experience designer's job is to have empathy for customers, to understand their problems and try to figure out ways to solve them. When you confuse the two roles, when you confuse solving problems with making screens, well, you make it someone's job to solve problems with screens. But, you know, good experience design, good UX, isn't a set of good screens. It's a good experience. There's a lot of confusion about design's role in technology today. Part of it is because we're evaluated with these poor metrics. Right? How many clicks did you generate? How addicted did you get your customers on our product? How hooked did you get them? 
We focus often on addiction instead of what this is supposed to be about, which is elegance and efficiency. As a result, our output has become more and more screen time for more and more people. Children in the United States look at a screen for about two hours a day. Teenagers who are mostly in school look at a screen for over seven hours a day. And adults look at a screen for over eight hours a day. There's, of course, consequences to all the screen-based thinking we're doing as an industry. And we're constantly distracted from friends and family. The CDC, which is the Center of Disease Control in the United States, estimates that 1,000 people every day get into a car accident because they're distracted by a screen while driving. The color temperature of our screens mimics midday. It does this through these deep blacks and bright whites. But when we look at that color temperature at night, it's been proven to throw off our sleep cycle. We're less creative when we stare at screens all day. There's a national public radio station called WNYC in New York City, and they had this series called Bored and Brilliant. It was about how moments of boredom, when we're kind of doing nothing, are actually our most creative moments. But when we're constantly distracted and intentionally making other people distracted, we're less creative as a world. We're also less empathetic. Even just pulling people away from screens for just a few days makes them more empathetic for people they don't understand. Look, don't get me wrong, there are some good things about having a liquid display. I mean, these slides wouldn't be here if it wasn't for screens. This event and all the information that was delivered through the amazing technology to get everyone here today probably wouldn't have been possible without screens. But I think there's a lot we can do to greatly reduce the amount of screen time in our lives. You know, it wasn't that long ago that our lives were filled with paper, and there were some people who dreamed of a paperless world. Now, instead, our lives are filled with screens, and I think we should dream of a screenless world. I actually think that the best graphical user interface is no graphical user interface. And so I wrote this book about, which I'm reading from a little bit here and there, about how and why we can build this screenless world. The book has three principles in it. The first one is to embrace typical processes instead of screens. This is some video footage of Dr. Michael Rothberg. A number of years ago, something happened to Dr. Rothberg that was undocumented in the medical field, a psychological event that he found that nobody had discovered or written about before. He designed a survey for the hospital in which he worked to see if other people on the medical staff had had the same psychological event happen to them. He discovered that an astounding 68% of medical staff had had that same undocumented psychological experience happened to them as well. It, they published the results of the survey in a medical journal, and the next year the study was repeated with some undergraduate college students. This time they found that 90% of those college students had the same psychological event happen to them. What was it? What plagued Dr. Rothberg and clearly so many other people? Something we now call ringsiety or phantom vibration syndrome which is the idea that your phone is buzzing and beeping when it's not. Kleiner Perkins found a few years ago that we're getting about 150 notifications per day. A study in the UK done last year found the average smartphone adult user checks their phone over 200 times a day. It's all these addicting services looking for more daily active users, buzzing and beeping in your pocket, hoping you'll pull your phone out and use their products and services. 
but there's a different way to designing great technology. A few years ago, I saw this app icon for the Moves app. They've been acquired by Facebook now and have changed their app icon. But when I first saw this, I thought, conceptually, there's something really fascinating about what's going on visually. Not so much, but conceptually, there's something really interesting here. It's showing a phone in a pocket. It's saying, I want to be a sort of back pocket app. Now, what the Moves app is, is that it's sort of a digital pedometer, right? The number of steps you're taking, where you're going, it tracks those things while your phone just sits in your pocket. Kind of interesting concept. Now, in order to get any value out of the Moves app, unfortunately, you have to pull your phone out of your pocket and look at this dashboard, which nobody ever wants to do. But let's look at a different problem. Losing your keys. It happens to a lot of people. There's a startup called Lockatron, which a few years ago tried to solve this problem by making an app for that. They had this cover that goes over a deadbolt, and then an app that has a, two giant buttons that say unlock and lock. From a UI perspective, this is totally fine. I mean, it's not an incredible UI, but it makes sense to have an unlock and lock on the, on the screen, just two buttons. But you know, they, they were looking at this, and they thought, OK, our UI is great, but what about our UX? What does our real user experience look like? They made a drawing that looks something like this, and this is kind of how it worked when they released their app with the current version of iOS. Step number one, you walk up to your home door and you want to open it. Step number two, you want to open your home door so you take your phone out of your pocket. Step number three, you want to open your home door so you wake up your phone. Step number four, you want to open your home door so at that time you slide to unlock. Step number five, you want to open your home door so you enter your PIN code. Step number six, you want to open your home door so you hit your home button to exit your last opened app. Step number seven, you want to open your home door so you hit your home button to exit your last open group. Step number eight, you want to open your home door so you swipe through a sea of icons trying to find the Lockatron app. Step number nine, once you find it, you tap on the Lockatron app icon. Step number 10, you want to open your home door so you wait for the Lockatron app to load. Step number 11, you want to open your home door so you tap this giant unlock button. Step number 12, you want to open your home door. So you open your home door. Um, and they looked at this, and they, they've been hearing a little bit about something I've been writing about, this best interface, this no interface idea. And they had heard about this first principle, embrace typical processes instead of screens. And they wondered, hey, can we get rid of all of the screens and just embrace someone's typical process? They walk up to the door, and then they can just open it? When they looked at this in totally different light, they thought, yeah. We could just put a Bluetooth radio in our deadbolt cover, turn on Bluetooth into our app, and when somebody walks up to the door, well, they can just open it. They went from screen-based thinking, drawing lazy rectangles, which is what we've been doing for the last 30 years, to where I think we're headed, screenless thinking. And when they showed this video on Kickstarter, they generated over $2 million. That's really good for a door lock. There are some other people who are working on different kinds of back pocket apps. Some of my colleagues at Google are working on this hands-free payment system, where you can keep your phone in your pocket or your purse, and between the register and the phone, they can talk to each other to verify payment. It's a back pocket app. It's an app that delights you when you don't even look at your phone. There's a startup called Ginger.io, which is working on a back pocket app for the healthcare world. What their back pocket app does is it helps people who have severe depression. It tracks the when they wake up, if they're calling their friends and family, certain triggers that indicate whether or not they're suffering from depression. And when they are, it alerts their healthcare provider and friends and family. It's an app 
It doesn't ask for form fields and survey data every hour, but instead gets its information and works magically while it just sits in your pocket. Some apps and some services use little slivers of back pocket app thinking, which is really nice. There's a home environmental control, Tado, which when you leave your home, knows it doesn't need to spend as much money and time on cooling or heating your house. Uber is not a completely back pocket app, but when you leave the car and you don't pay, that's a moment in which you don't take your phone out of your pocket. While all these products and services are trying so hard to do it, Uber has found that when you keep someone's phone in your pocket, it's actually the most delightful part of the entire experience. The second principle of the book is to leverage computers instead of serving them. If you go to the Smithsonian Museums in Washington, D.C., you'll see some of our greatest collections, some old dinosaurs and different animals collected over time. You'll also see a supercomputer. This is IBM's Deep Blue. It's famous, of course, because in 1997, it beat the world's greatest chess player, Garry Kasparov, at a game of chess. We knew for a long time machines could outmuscle us. But when machines could outthink us, well, that was something new. And so we took Deep Blue and we put it in a museum. But if you compare Deep Blue's processing power, the amazing processing power that it had to beat Garry Kasparov at a game of chess, to some of the old, not-so-great computers that we kind of want to destroy that sit on some people's desktops, computers you might even just want to throw out the window, compared to these crappy old Dells that sit around, they actually have much faster processors. They're actually much more capable machines than a supercomputer that we keep in the Smithsonian. But we make all these products and services the same way, no matter our progression in technology, where we serve computers, instead of a better relationship where computers can serve us. Today, there's a new kind of chore, a new set of numerous mindless errands embedded into our already overwhelmingly busy lives. Over the past decade, these tiny requests have been culminating to a larger and larger ball of more and more of our time, taking us farther and farther away from spending more time with our friends and family. These tasks are the result of graphical user interfaces that assume constant demanding attention as the expected norm. They are the byproduct of screen-based thinking, first-world errands for the almighty computer and the apparent productivity software we have to manage. On a given day, you could have software updates to download and install, passwords to reset, notifications to attend to, files and folders to sort, messages to archive, social media requests to confirm, calendars to update, credit card balances to check, information to verify, storage space to manage and monitor, documents to back up, messages to reply to, photos to upload, flights to check in, these are digital chores, the maintenance of our digital lives. Oh, a new version of the operating system is available? Yes, I'd love to download it for the next few hours. These digital chores are nightly, weekly, and monthly errands that can just feel just as mundane and force as taking out the trash. Sometimes they can have even worse consequences than the traditional chores. Before, you forgot to do the laundry and you had to wear an old shirt. Now you forget to accept a request and your friend may not be your friend anymore. You forget to change your password, your account can get hacked, and you can lose all your private pictures. 
Maybe even all your friends all get porn in their inboxes attributed to you. No, I, I swear that's not my dick pic. There are some people who are chipping away at these digital chores. They're restoring computing to what it really should be. There are services like If This Then That, which is sort of hacker-like, where it takes you away from looking at your screen. There are services like X.AI, which you can CC in your emails to make automatic calendar invites. There are services like Dashlane, which with one click you can change all of your passwords. What some people are doing is they're tapping into the third principle of the book, which is to create a system that adapts to individuals. When we go away from creating a generic UI that works for the average person, and we go towards creating experiences for individuals, something really interesting starts to happen. Here's a problem, saving money. A lot of people in the Western world aren't so great at doing it. So a startup called Digit is trying to solve this problem. They, they look at the way you spend money, and then based on the way you're spending money, they pull some of it in, aside into a savings account. It all happens automatically, behind the scenes. You know, Digit didn't even launch with an app because their goal isn't to generate more taps and daily active and monthly active users. Their, their goal is to solve a problem. And, you know, what it does in the background is incredibly powerful. So there's a lot to talk about when opening up this idea, and obviously I wrote a whole book about it, but I first started writing about this in, in 2012. I wrote this blog post called The Best Interface is No Interface, and it's gotten some positive press. It's also gotten some negative press. This is a, a piece called No to No UI, which you can read later if you hate this presentation. Um, there's some people who, who say, you know, why are we even talking about this? This is called the no UI debate is rubbish. But some people ask really some really interesting questions, like what happens when these automatic, behind-the-scenes, invisible experiences fail? Right? We, with the interface, we know what's going on, but what happens when these great things fail? And, you know, I think any good system embraces failure. This is an automatic sliding door. It even often has a push-to-open feature if the power goes out. So even our simplest automatic things tend to have a backup. So what some people are doing that I think is really fascinating is they're shifting UI from the primary experience to the secondary experience. So they're creating these no UI experiences up front as a primary solution to people's problems, and then using a UI as a backup. For example, there's this headlamp called Petzl. It automatically adjusts the amount of light that's coming out of its headlamp. And so when you look at a map, it dims. When you look in a deep, dark cave, it brightens. It helps you save battery. Then Petzl has these automatic settings. It's a sort of no UI. It doesn't have a giant touch screen on it. Headlamp. But it does actually come with a piece of software. You don't have to ever use a piece of software. But if you don't like the automatic settings, you can go in and change them. Some people ask about privacy. How do you make these things work when you have to collect all this amount of information? Yeah, privacy is incredibly important. Some people have some really nice privacy settings. This is Cortana. I think they do a pretty good job with really clear language about what things they're tracking. What some services do, like If This Then That, which I mentioned earlier, is they have things with Evernote where 
it expires over a certain amount of time. So say, hey, we'll link these accounts, but we'll only do it for a year, and then we'll ask you again. So it's not perpetually pulling information about you. One of the things that data scientists talk about that I think is really nice is this idea of minimal viable data, which means the least amount of data you can collect to create the experience you're trying to provide. I'll end this with a reading from the last chapter of the book. One day, I hope you think this book is utterly boring, passe, and that you hear about the idea of screenless solutions and yawn. The best interface is no interface. Wake me up when you have something interesting to say. Because if that day comes, remember to celebrate. You'll be living in a better time, not one drowning in screens with intentionally addictive interfaces that distract us from one another, but one in which typical processes are embraced, when computers serve us instead of us serving them, when technological systems are continuously adapting to our individual needs. A day, probably a few decades from now, when children dress up as their grandparents on Halloween by sticking smartphones to their faces. Look, I'm like grandpa who stares at his giant phone all day. That day will be joyous. I hope that today's marvel becomes tomorrow's mundane. But that day may not come. This book is a journey into just one possible future. Some of the companies I've mentioned for taking us toward that future may have already disappeared by the time you've read this book. But I hope the ideas in this book aren't forgotten, but end up as stepping stones of something far greater, a future in which the best case of a graphical user interface has been understood as no interface. Along the way, there'll be battles to be fought inside companies and classrooms privacy issues to tackle, and other unforeseen hurdles. But when the philosophy settles, the debaters come to agreement, the doers understand how to get it done, and the business plans start to fall into place. We could have something utterly revolutionary in our hands. And when that revolution finally comes to fruition, we may think of it as the most boring, expected solution. Here's the hoping for that boredom. Thanks, that's all. Thank you, Golden. Stay Thank with you. us on stage. Yeah. We have a discussion. Uh, just one question. Who is convinced that having no interface is the best interface? Who OK. And who is going to the Golden Krishna hate side <laughs> <laughs> later on to convince himself that we need interfaces? OK. <laughs> Seems you have a it's fan crowd shy. here. They'll, they'll write a blog post about it. OK. I'd like to ask a colleague of you to come up. Jeremy Abbott, he's working with Google. Where is he? One second. Okay. So then I have a, okay. uh, one more question for you, Golden. Yes. Um, I was I was expecting that you would talk also about um, having uh, interfaces to talk to, like Siri. Is that also the trend that you just let out here? Yeah. In this well, you know, voice is a really interesting way to get rid of screens. I'm a afraid of where we are today with voice, because a lot of the way voice works today, it's a lot of guessing, right? So we, we had things like MS-DOS, and you had to guess a command. And we built graphical user interfaces where you could see all the choices you can choose from. And to go to voice almost feels like going back to, I don't know what to say. If I say this thing, will it do that thing? If I say this other thing, will it do the other thing? Mm -hmm. I think we can solve some of those problems, but right now where we are with voice, I'm a little afraid of how confusing a lot of those experiences are, so I didn't bring it up. But I do think that there is definitely potential in that area. Okay. 
So how far are we with the microphones? Is there any more question for Golden? Because we're going to have a discussion now, but if you have a question now, bring it up until Jared. There is a question. Yay, somebody's <laughs> daring. Is it Natalie? Yeah, Natalie. Thanks, that was fascinating. Um, I wonder what role and responsibility you, you feel the largest companies in the world have in creating experiences which the users have greater control over, so especially when it comes to things like privacy or minimum viable data or expiration on data. What ethical responsibility, if any, do the people creating these apps have? Well, I, it's the psychologist asking. <laughs> <laughs> Without getting you fired, obviously. <laughs> well, I can only just give my personal opinion, which is that I think any time... I mean, one of the things about technology today is that there are only a handful of companies that have so much of our data, have so much influence. Um, I shouldn't get myself in trouble here, so I'll be careful at what I say. Um, but I think that that implies and that absolutely creates an environment which you need to be very careful about what you do and how you plug in certain services to one another and what kinds of data collection you can have and how things are siloed from each other. There's a lot of interesting ways to try to create giant ecosystems where data is being collected but only by a particular service in a particular place. So maybe in this larger ecosystem, one particular product or service is collecting some information, but it's not necessarily sharing it with another product or service. So you can find ways to sort of carve it out. That's not exactly what you're asking. What you're asking is, is there a responsibility for these companies to do it? Yes, there absolutely is. Um, and there's a lot of different techniques um, to go about it. Um, I do think, as consumers of these products, it's absolutely important that we're constantly demanding that kind of uh, privacy settings, security, transparency, because if we don't demand it, then those companies won't build it, right? They're just responding partially to what the public wants. 